Hey, it's Shannon Ballard. I want to say thanks to my Southern Mysteries patrons who helped make this independent podcast possible, including my newest patrons, Lucinda from Rising Fawn, Georgia, Allison from Cottonwood, Alabama, and Angeline from Winter Springs, Florida, and of course, Carrie and Diane, who are listening from mysterious locations. Appreciate your support. And hey, look, if you haven't signed up, you can join me on Patreon and hear a lot of stories. Ad-free episodes, the Southern Mysteries archive of more than 60 episodes, previously released bonus episodes for patrons, plus the new monthly patron-exclusive podcast, Audacious Tales of American Crime. You can sign up now and start listening immediately at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. In December 1989, federal court judge Robert Vance was killed in his Mountain Brook, Alabama home when he opened a package that contained a mail bomb. Two days later, Savannah, Georgia civil rights attorney Robert Robinson was killed in a separate explosion. Authorities defused two additional mail bombs, one sent to the federal courthouse in Atlanta, the other to the Jacksonville, Florida branch of the NAACP. The investigation to find the person responsible for the 1989 tri-state attacks became one of the largest cases in FBI history. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the story of the Tri-State Terrorist. Robert Smith Vance Sr. was born in Alabama on May 10, 1931. He earned his law degree at the University of Alabama, and from 1956 to 1977, Vance worked as a lawyer in private practice in Birmingham. Robert Vance dedicated much of his life's work to racial equality. He integrated the Alabama Democratic Party while he served as chairman. He also removed a white rooster, a symbol of white supremacy, from the Alabama Democratic Party seal. In 1968, Vance led the first racially mixed state delegation to a Democratic National Convention. In 1977, Vance was nominated to a federal judgeship by President Jimmy Carter, serving on the Fifth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. His jurisdiction included Alabama and five other southern states. By 1981, the Fifth Circuit was divided into two— Judge Vance was assigned to the 11th Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, overseeing cases in Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. On December 16, 1989, Judge Vance and his wife Helen were preparing for the upcoming holidays. They planned to spend the Saturday morning in their upscale Mountain Brook, Alabama home before running errands. Judge Vance woke up around 7, enjoyed a cup of coffee, then headed out to work on his favorite things, tending his garden and his dog kennels. When Helen woke up an hour later, the couple enjoyed a cup of coffee together as they discussed plans for the family Christmas party. In the early afternoon, Judge Vance ran errands while Helen prepared a late lunch. 
When their mailman knocked on the door, Helen answered and signed for two shoebox-sized packages with the regular mail. She put it on the kitchen table and finished preparing lunch as Judge Vance returned home and began sorting the mail. He opened one of the packages, which was from his brother Bill. The second package bore a return address label with the name Lewis Morgan, a fellow judge in the 11th District. Vance and Morgan shared a love of horses, and Morgan often mailed Judge Vance copies of old horse magazines. Helen Vance later said she watched as her husband opened the package, and suddenly everything went blank and silent. The next thing she remembered, she was waking up on the kitchen floor, looking up at the ceiling. At first, she assumed a ceiling light fixture had blown. But as Helen Vance moved to try to stand up and check on her husband, all she saw at first was debris and smoke. Then to her horror, she saw her husband in the corner of the kitchen. There was a pool of blood around Robert Vance, and Helen knew he was gone. When Judge Robert Vance opened that package, the bomb inside shot 82 and three-fourths inch nails into his body at the rate of 1,300 miles an hour. This attack was shocking and unsettling for central Alabama. Federal investigators organized a task force to find the bomber. They called the operation Van Pack for Vance Package Bomb. But the bomb in Alabama would not be the last in the 11th District. Two days later, in Savannah, Georgia, civil rights lawyer and city alderman Robert Robinson found a package on his desk. When he opened it, a nail bomb inside exploded. 42-year-old Robinson survived the initial blast, but died three hours later. Later that evening, Florida Representative Willie Dennis, the president of the Jacksonville branch of the NAACP, received a package at her office. She was late for a meeting, so she ran out and left the package on her desk, which saved her life. After her meeting, she went home for the night and later received a call from a friend who told her about the attack on Robinson in Savannah. Word was spreading to NAACP offices to immediately notify authorities if anyone in the office received an unexpected package. Representative Dennis called authorities, and a Florida bomb squad examined the package in her office. They confirmed there was a bomb inside. They were able to defuse the device and preserve evidence that authorities used to try to identify the maker— and tracked down a suspect. The ATF determined the device was from the same bomb maker who sent devices to Judge Vance and Robert Robinson. The maker meticulously constructed the device and spray-painted everything inside with black enamel paint to cover their fingerprints and possible fibers that could lead investigators to them. Inside the box sent to Representative Dennis, Authorities found a letter from the bomb maker. The writer took credit for the bombs 
along with an NAACP tear gas attack in Atlanta months earlier. No one had been injured in that attack, which appeared to be a trial on the part of the bomb maker to ensure the package could be delivered in the mail. Inside the tear gas device, authorities found a letter that mentioned the 11th Circuit Court was unfair. To federal authorities, it was clear the 11th District was under attack. Along with the bombs, the tri-state terrorists sent nearly 30 threatening letters to civil rights groups, news organizations, and a number of federal judges. Fearing more attacks, the U.S. Marshal Service ordered round-the-clock protection for the Vance family and all federal judges in the district. Courthouse security video and x-ray equipment was upgraded and security forces in 11th District courthouses underwent additional training in bomb detection. Federal authorities knew they had to act fast to prevent another attack. One of the tri-state terrorist letters revealed revenge could be their motivation. They referenced the rape and murder of Atlanta preschool teacher Julie Love, a black man, Emmanuel Hammond had been arrested and charged with a July 1988 attack. The tri-state terrorist referenced this in a letter, writing, Anytime a black man rapes a white woman in Alabama, Florida, or Georgia, Americans for a competent federal judicial system shall assassinate one federal judge, one attorney, and one officer of the NAACP. The FBI used new DNA technology to profile saliva samples left on the stamps on each package, along with the black paint on the devices. But the bomb maker had taken precautions. No forensic material was found on any of the bombs or materials used to manufacture and mail them. The FBI focused in on the typewriter the bomber used to write his letters and address the mailing labels. They learned the machine had a fingerprint of sorts that offered a strong lead. The typewriter had a replacement number one key, which made the type unique. The FBI search for the typewriter led them to Enterprise, Alabama, to a junk dealer named Robert Wayne O'Farrell. O'Farrell told investigators he owned a similar typewriter, but didn't know what happened to it. His daughter said she bought it from a woman a while ago, but eventually threw it away because they weren't using it. Authorities spent a lot of time investigating the O'Farrells for any motivation or connection to the attacks. But in the end, the typewriter was another dead end in the hunt for the tri-state terrorist. The FBI continued to share photos of the unique bomb with law enforcement nationwide. They asked if anyone recognized the unique signature of a rod and very specific end caps to inform them immediately. An FBI chemist called one of the leaders of the task force to let him know he had seen one device like that in his career, and he had seen it Decades earlier, the device was made by a man who was convicted of possessing a pipe bomb in 1972. 
The suspect was Walter Leroy Moody. Born in South Georgia in 1935, Moody was described by enemies and friends as a man who was at times very bright, but a loner. He was obsessive and very manipulative. Walter Moody attended Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. He studied chemistry and physics before enrolling, then dropping out of law school to join the Army and Air Force. By 1972, Moody was married with one child. He struggled to find his way and keep a job, but his wife Hazel found work to provide for the family. In May of 1972, Hazel came across a package in their home in Macon. She picked it up, took it to the kitchen, and when she opened it, a homemade bomb inside exploded. Miraculously, Hazel Moody survived, but was maimed by the blast. Investigators learned the package had been addressed to a car dealer who had repossessed Walter Moody's car. They soon put two and two together and believed Moody had intended to mail the package to the car dealer, but when Hazel found it, she became the unintended victim of the attack. Walter Moody was arrested for possessing a bomb, but maintained his innocence, even as he was convicted in federal court. Moody was sentenced to six years in prison. Despite his objections, Hazel Moody filed for divorce. Walter Moody's obsessive nature meant he spent his years in prison trying to fight his conviction. He wanted it overturned, and when he was released, he kept up the fight. In court filings, Moody claimed a person named Gene Wallace was responsible for the attack. Moody said Wallace had been attempting to assist him in regaining possession of his car, and Wallace was responsible for the bomb. But investigators could not find this man and eventually came to the conclusion Gene Wallace was not a real person. Their suspicions were confirmed when they learned Moody recruited a witness to substantiate his story about Wallace— Moody made small monthly payments to a poor, young, handicapped woman named Julie Lynn West. She confessed she was paid to lie about Jean Wallace. Still, Walter Moody officially petitioned for an order to overturn his 1972 conviction. He failed to win in the 11th District Court, so he sought help from a higher power, the White House, Moody wrote letters to then-President George H.W. Bush asking for help, but to his surprise and frustration, never received a reply. Walter Moody kept returning to court to try his case, but the 11th District affirmed denial to overturn his conviction in June 1989, then denied a rehearing in August 1989. The final denial set Walter Moody off. Moody began to prepare to do battle with the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Investigators had an inside source who confirmed Walter Moody's plan. His wife, Susan McBride, a 
Authorities learned Moody was controlling and abusive, which meant when he told Susan to do something, she had to act or she felt she would be harmed. Susan McBride explained to investigators her husband's initial plan was to attack the 11th district with deadly gas. In the summer of 1989, Walter and Susan drove through several southern states. He stopped at stores and ordered Susan to go inside and shop for supplies. Moody attempted to make a deadly gas, but failed. So his backup plan was a tear gas package bomb mailed to the NAACP office in Atlanta. This was Moody's declaration of war on the 11th district. Once the tear gas package bomb was successfully delivered, Walter Moody felt he had won the first battle in his war and prepared for his next deadly attacks. Walter Moody began constructing nail bombs he planned to use against federal judges, lawyers, and NAACP officials. He again forced Susan to take a road trip with him through several states where he stopped at stores and sent Susan inside to shop for supplies needed to construct four powerful bombs. Moody also called on his friend Ted Banks in Titusville, Florida, who agreed to do basic metalwork to construct Moody's bombs to precise specifications. The bombs consisted of two small square steel plates held to each end by threaded rods that were four to five inches long. The pipe was packed with double-based smokeless gunpowder and was built to ignite with a flashlight bulb. The bulb's glass was removed to expose the filament, which grew very hot when wired to a D-cell battery. Moody's signature, those precise specifications, were his undoing. Because he repeated the same pattern in 1989 as the bomb he was convicted of possessing in 1972, FBI chemist Lloyd Irwin recognized the signature. It was the breakthrough the task force needed. They had enough evidence to obtain a search warrant for Walter Moody's home, an apartment Moody rented in Chambly, Georgia, and an airplane hangar he could access. Investigators found bomb-making materials in all three locations. On July 13, 1990, Walter Leroy Moody was arrested, along with his wife, Susan. It was when the couple were separated for interviews that Moody's wife, Susan, revealed her fear of her husband and agreed to fully cooperate with the investigation. She was released on bail, and her cooperation helped law enforcement make their case against Moody. Knowing Walter Moody had a habit of talking to himself out loud, investigators received authorization for surveillance of Moody in jail. Walter Moody ended up providing additional evidence to investigators because of that habit of talking out loud. The evidence found in the three locations Moody frequented, along with information provided by his wife, helped connect Walter Moody to the bombs. But there was still the question of motive. Why had Moody attacked the 11th district? 
it would take the task force nearly a year to answer that question. Initially, investigators believed racism was the motive. The tear gas attack on the NAACP, one of the bombs being mailed to Robert Robinson, a respected civil rights leader. And then there was the mention of the 1988 attack of Julie Love. Investigators would learn these were intentional acts to throw off the investigation. Walter Moody's tri-state attacks were against the court system. He resented the 11th District for never overturning his 1972 conviction. And he resented Judge Robert Vance following contact with a judge in a 1982 case. In the summer of 82, Walter Moody launched a business called Superior Cell Drives. The business developed auxiliary motors for sailboats. Moody hired three men, Timothy Williams, Danny Feeder, and Warren Glover, to work with him on engineering and the design of motors. According to court records, on the morning of December 17th, Walter Moody insured the three employees for $750,000 each through Prudential Insurance. Later that day, Moody drove the men to the Florida Keys to test a new boat motor. The water was choppy, so it took a while to reach a location Walter Moody deemed suitable for testing. Moody told his employees he needed all three of them to get some underwater photographs of their new boat motor. The men did as they were told and then claimed as they tried to climb the ladder to get back on the boat, Walter Moody stomped on their hands to force them back into the water as he sped away. The men claimed Moody returned to the area twice but continued to ignore their cries for help. When Moody returned a third time, Tim Williams attempted to crawl back on the boat, but was struck in the head with a heavy object. The men were left to struggle in the water as Moody sped off for the last time. Timothy Williams, Danny Feeder, and Warren Glover survived only because they were rescued by the Coast Guard. The three men took Walter Moody to court on attempted murder charges in June of 1983. The three former employees were all found to be involved in a drug ring, which led to their case being dropped. Walter Moody filed a countersuit against his former employees in 1986. The men were accused of malicious prosecution. An 11th District Court panel ordered the case be dropped. One of the members of the panel was Judge Robert Vance. Walter Leroy Moody blamed Robert Vance for his frustration, his disappointment with the court system. The target of his rage was the first victim. All of the other attacks were meant to cover up his motivation and throw off the investigation. Walter Leroy Moody was charged with the murders of Judge Vance and civil rights attorney Robert Robinson. He was also charged with mailing the bombs that were diffused at the 11th District's headquarters and the Jacksonville office of the NAACP. An order directed the recusal of all circuit and district judges in the 11th District, 
So Walter Moody's federal trial was held before a sequestered jury in Minnesota in 1991. His wife Susan testified against him and received immunity for her cooperation with the federal government. The lead prosecutor was Louis Free, who eventually became the leader of the FBI. At trial, he revealed Susan's cooperation helped match a fingerprint on one of the bomb letters to an employee at a copy shop in Kentucky. Susan confirmed this copy shop was one of the locations Walter Moody made her copy documents that were mailed with the bombs. Walter Moody took the stand against his legal team's advice. He blamed the bombs on the Ku Klux Klan then offered bizarre testimony about his sex life. When asked about the shopping trips in which Susan was made to buy bomb components, Moody said he was tricked into buying all of those materials for someone else. Moody claimed there was a government conspiracy to frame him. On June 28, 1991, Walter Leroy Moody was found guilty of the 70 charges against him including the murder of Judge Robert Vance. Judge Edward DeVitt sentenced Moody to seven life terms, plus 400 years. The murder of Robert Robinson, Walter Moody's second victim, was not a federal charge because Robinson was a Savannah City official. The state of Georgia brought murder charges against Moody. When he stood trial, he was again found guilty. Walter Moody was also tried for the murder of Judge Robert Vance in an Alabama state court. He was convicted, and in 1997, Moody was sentenced to death by electric chair. He remained on death row at Holman Correctional Facility near Atmore, Alabama, until April 2018, when his death sentence was carried out. His wife, Susan, had long ago divorced him, and his four children refused to have any contact with him or continue to use his last name. Until the day the state of Alabama carried out the death sentence of Walter Leroy Moody, he denied his guilt. Moody was so desperate to live, he tried to get Judge Vance's son, Robert Vance Jr., to stand by him. Moody argued the Vance family deserved to know who really killed Judge Vance. Robert Vance Jr. attended the federal and state trials and said he was convinced Walter Moody was the man who assassinated his father. By 2018, the state of Alabama offered death row inmates a choice. They could die by electric chair or by lethal injection. Walter Moody chose the injection. When the sentence was carried out on April 19th, 2018, Moody was 83 years old, making him the oldest inmate to be executed in modern times. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. When Judge Robert Vance was assassinated, he was survived by his wife, Helen, and their only son, Robert Vance Jr., who is a circuit court judge on Alabama's 10th Judicial Circuit. Robert Vance Jr. was interviewed by Alabama Today in the days leading up to Moody's execution in 2018. 
He revealed he knew his father struggled with the death penalty, and so did his mom, Helen, who died in 2010. But Helen had once mentioned to her son that she might make an exception in this instance. The family of Robert Robinson decided not to be present for Moody's execution, saying they would get some satisfaction that they lived to see the day he would be executed for his crimes and the pain he caused. Both families said they wanted their loved one remembered in the same way as good men who loved working for things and for people they believed in. Thanks for listening to this episode of Southern Mysteries. You can find all the episode sources, learn more about the show, and how you can join in and support this independent podcast on Patreon at southernmysteries.com. And there are other ways to support the show if you can't help out financially. Not everyone can. Rate and review Southern Mysteries where you're listening. That's a great way to help other people discover the show. And you can also share this episode on your social channels. Most of the podcasts I listen to have been recommended to me by friends, so it's a great way to spread the word about Southern Mysteries. Thanks for supporting the show in any way you can. And thank you, as always, for listening to Southern Mysteries. Southern Mysteries.